If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Title this morning's message is Getting the Gospel Right. Last August when we were at Pioneer Days, uh, I think it was on my way somewhere else, uh, and uh, somebody uh, uh, agreed to me and said that they were so appreciative of the community unity services that we were able to lay our doctrines aside. Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, none of us involved lay our doctrines aside. We as Christians, we as followers of Christ, cannot lay what we believe aside. We live in a time, and it seems, you know, the past 100 years within American Christianity has been a hard time for the word doctrine, but doctrine is important. Doctrine means teaching, and it means what we believe that the Bible teaches. And I tell you right now, on the authority of the Word of God, that what you have been taught and what you believe as a response to what you have been taught will play a big role in where you spend eternity. Here we are in a climax in the early church, a climax as to what the gospel is. When we hear individuals say that doctrine does not matter, what they're really saying is what we believe about the gospel does not matter. And yet Paul, writing to the church of Galatia, tells us in bold terms that if anyone comes preaching another gospel, then the New Testament gospel, they are accursed. They are under God's condemnation. None of a, no one loves getting into doctrinal arguments, and yet we are commanded in the pages of Scripture, particularly in Jude, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We have a danger both inside and outside the churches. We're going to see here in Acts of compromising the gospel. So Acts chapter 15, Luke writes beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the brothers were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the converse, conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said... It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made, me, made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe in God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this words, with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. They write the letter, they send Paul out, and they write sending greetings in verse 24. Since we heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, verse 25, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also." Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this passage, uh, we pray that you give us uh, illumination, understanding, and its application for our context today as we consider the fact that the gospel was in jeopardy at such an early period. We understand that the gospel can be jeopardized in our own day and age. We understand there are individuals who bear the name of Christ uh, that would love nothing more than for the gospel of your grace and for your word to be compromised, to conform to the standards of today. And so we pray that you give us boldness, uh, that we would be indeed obedient to contend for the faith that has been delivered once and for all to the saints. And as we 
contemplate this fact. We know that there is no other gospel, and so we pray that through the clear preaching of the gospel today, that you would be pleased to save some in our midst. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So as we consider what's going on here, we are reminded of the, the great danger that the gospel faces. You know, oftentimes uh, our, our eyes, uh, thinking of the dangers that the church faces, are looking outside. You know, we're often worried uh, uh, if we listen to voices in our culture and we think that the greatest danger of the church is the government. Well, the great danger that they're facing here is a group of insiders. The, the early church, the apostles, particularly the apostle Paul, knew that the great greatest danger the church faces is when, to borrow from Jesus, tares are, are sown among the wheat. The Apostle Paul uh, would tell the church of Ephesus that from their own number, wolves would arise seeking to devour the flock. And so you have a really great thing going on here. God has been saving Gentiles apart from works. Gentiles, like you and I, were hearing the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died in the sinner's stead, that he rised victorious over the third day. People were getting saved, and some people who claimed to be Christians did not like that. And so Luke tells us in verse 1, But, so Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. They're encouraging and strengthening the church. Gentiles and Jews are being saved and growing in the faith. But, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. And the apostles are going to make very clear when they send the letter out that they had no reason to be teaching, that they had not been sent out, that they had, been not, they had not been commissioned to do this. Uh, verse 24, we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. You know, th th this would be the first group of they went out from us, but they were not of us. And so you have these individuals who are coming down and they are wanting to compromise the gospel in a very major way. They were teaching this large group with Gentiles being saved, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you do something, you cannot be saved. They're turning the gospel upon its head. The gospel is predicated upon the fact that Jesus has done everything that is necessary for salvation. The New Testament gospel, as Paul would say, is a free gift. You know, I use this illustration a lot, but it's true. How many of us on Christmas morning go around to our loved ones and say, what are you going to do to earn this gift? Our birthdays, when birthdays come around, how many of you tell your loved one on their birthday, what are you going to do to earn this birthday present that I've got you? 
And yet, while we think it's absolutely absurd to do something like that, there is something in the human heart that wants to have something to boast of in regards to the gospel. We, we want desperately want to take some credit for our salvation. And so you have this group of individuals, they, they want to say that there is some grounds of human boasting. That there is something we as fallen sinners do that is part in meriting our salvation. Jonathan Edwards said it well, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas had been ministering. They had seen Gentiles believe, turn their lives from the darkness of pagan idolatry to the light. They had seen the Holy Spirit transform these believers from the inside out. So when Paul and Barnabas hear that the gospel is in danger, they speak up. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's an understatement of a lifetime. If we, we understand the temperament of Paul, he probably had some very strong words for these individuals. He would tell the church of Galatia when they were facing the same problem again because these Judaizers did not learn and they were encouraging the Gentiles that they had to be circumcised to be saved. He would tell them if they're troubling them that he wished that they would just emasculate themselves. So Luke, understatement of lifetime, no small dissension. This was a big battle. And so Paul and Barnabas just to make sure that there is unity in the church on the gospel. They are commissioned by the church of Antioch to go to Jerusalem uh, to get to the heart of the question, to get an answer. Whether these 12 who had been commissioned by Christ are going to say that the gospel is faith in Christ plus works. So Paul and Barnabas make their trip down. We're told in verse 2, Three, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. Now, we as Baptists pay very careful attention to how Luke is describing the audience that is making this decision. The church, the apostles, and the elders. This, this is a very much congregational decision. This isn't the twelve arbitrarily deciding for every believer in Christ. Here in the New Testament, this is an aside, we see uh, the foundation of congregationalism. Now, no New Testament church does anything because a select group decide, hey, this is what we're going to do regardless of whatever, what everyone else thinks. So they are met by the assembly, the 
assembly of the church, the apostles and the elders, and they tell them all that God has done. And again, Luke reminds us, the, the problem has followed them from Antioch back to Jerusalem. Again, verse 5, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, and they actually add to it, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So initially they're saying that they have to be circumcised before they can become Christian. Now they're saying they must be circumcised and keep all the law of Moses. The apostles respond because they had been taught well by Christ. That they understood what the law had brought about for the people of Israel. They understood that they only knew one person who perfectly kept the law, and that was Jesus. From Genesis to the Gospels, there is only one person who has perfectly obeyed the will of the Father, and that is Jesus. And so Peter and the others are clear to guard the gospel against this great danger. Because they understood what's often been forgotten in the history of the church. You know, we think of the Protestant Reformation and what was at risk, what the church was teaching at the time of the Protestant Reformation that led to the Reformation was that you had to do your best and then God would save you. That might sound encouraging. That might sound like good news. But if you're a really self-examination person, You have to ask yourself, everything that you do, have you done what you have done to the best of your ability? And oftentimes, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, imagine you're at work, and you perform a task, and your your boss comes to you. Uh, Did you do that as perfectly as you possibly could? You'd probably say no. I just wanted to get it done well. I didn't want to take the time and effort to do it perfectly. We look at our lives, we understand that uh, we fall short of perfection. We don't always do our best, especially in regards to our religious life. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we could all pray more, we could follow Christ more, we could sin less than we do, and yet we all stumble and we sin and we fall short. So the idea that if we do our best, what would be good news is actually terrible news. And the idea that we would be saved by what we do is an affront to the gospel of Christ. If salvation was possible, through circumcision and keeping the law of Moses, Christ died in vain. The cross was a monstrosity and there was no purpose to it. And so the apostles guard the gospel. We see in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. They had been cleansed. They had been saved from their sins by faith. They didn't lift a single finger to contribute to their salvation. They freely received the good news of Christ. They believed in it. They trusted in it. They treasured it. And apart from anything they did, God sent the Holy Spirit upon them. Even before they were baptized in water, they received the Holy Spirit. If you remember, when Peter went to Cornelius' house, that's exactly the order of events. They received the Holy Spirit and gave demonstration that God had sent the Spirit. And then Peter and the others, seeing that God had saved them by faith, baptized them. Peter understood that salvation is by faith alone. But these individuals, these are the Pharisee party, want to add to the gospel. They want to, as the Pharisees had done during the ministry of Jesus, they wanted to bind heavy burdens on the backs of others that they would not bear. Notice how Peter describes it in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. I'm going to bind this heavy burden on someone that they couldn't bear themselves. They wouldn't have turned to Christ if they thought that they could fully, perfectly keep the Old Testament law. And so Peter reminds them that salvation is by faith alone through grace alone. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. There's a danger in the Christian life. There is a danger in our evangelistic practice that when we are considering whether someone is genuinely saved or not, we think that if they're really saved, they'll be exactly like we are after 20 years or 30 years of Christian growth. Think, you know, if they're really going to get saved, they need to straighten up right now because this is who I am in Christ right now. We don't understand that the grace of God has grown us and nurtured us. We forget that when the gospel confronts a sinner, it confronts them when, as Peter would say in 1 Peter, that they are in the kingdom of darkness. Anytime we share the gospel with someone, Paul would tell us that we are bringing the gospel to someone who is, Ephesians chapter 2, a child of wrath. Child of wrath, a son of disobedience. Because in the world, that's the two categories that we have to deal with. Either somebody is saved or they're in the 
thrall of Satan. It reminds them, well, come in the same way. We come into a saving relationship with Christ not because we've measured up to the law. One Puritan described the law as being the hard slave master that commands bricks be made but gives no straw. John Bunyan once said, The law bids me run but neither gives me legs or feet but the gospel bids me fly and gives me wings. It's easy for us to forget this. See, the truth of the matter right now, if you're a believer in Christ, if you are accepted in Christ, you are accepted because of the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Your standing in Christ does not transform. It doesn't, it's not that you're saved by your faith and then it's your works that are going to keep you in the family of God. It is the grace of God that saves us. It is the grace of God in the Lord Jesus. We are saved presently. We are being saved. That's our sanctification. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. And as Paul would say in Romans, we will be saved from the wrath of God to come. And all three of those are predicated upon the grace of God in Christ. Peter guards the gospel. He reminds them that they've seen God give confirmation to the gospel truth that Gentiles are welcomed in Christ by faith through the grace of Christ. And there's a silence. And they listen to Barnabas and Paul Relate what God had done as the Gentiles were being saved. And now James, the brother of Christ, responds. Verse 13, brothers, listen to me. See, I mean, it's related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written... After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James is reading his Old Testament. He's saying, this is what God promised in the first place. God had promised that he was going to bring light to the Gentiles, that he was going to bring salvation. So it shouldn't surprise us That God does what He says He's going to do. So they understand that there's a great danger to the gospel in trying to add our works to the gospel. And so they guard the gospel, but they understand that the gospel does create a, a, a division. This grace that calls us in Christ, calls us, transports us from darkness to light. See, we face a danger on two fronts. 
There are individuals in our day and age uh, that, that, would love, uh, that would love nothing more than if uh, we said that you had to keep the law of Moses to be saved. To do works to be saved. There are other groups that would love nothing more than to say that an individual can live however they want and still be saved. The gospel does transform lives. So the disciples. James says, therefore my judgment is that, verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should write should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. All the things that they reaffirm that the Gentiles should not be doing are actually things that predate the Mosaic Law. We understand oh, what sexual morality is in light of Genesis 1-2. Jesus, when dealing with his opponents, went back to the beginning. From the beginning, God created them male and female, and the two became one flesh. And biblically, anything outside of that is sexual immorality. They were in a society, in a world that reveled in sexual immorality. If you read some of what went on in the Greco-Roman world when they're writing this letter to the Gentiles, you would think our society was puritanical in comparison. They are given commands that would guard... Their unity with their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. They're told not to eat food polluted by idols. As a new convert from idolatry, it's practical wisdom to give idolatry a wide berth. They're commanded to abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality was the mark of the world. We understand that God holds the marriage bed in high regard from what has been strangled and from blood. If they failed in keeping this, they couldn't have table fellowship with their fellow Jews. Even prior to the Mosaic prohibitions against eating blood, we find just after Noah gets off the ark, this prohibition given. In Genesis... Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah. Genesis 9 verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that Lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Verse 4, Genesis 9, 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, 
And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So right off, getting off the ark, they, they are commanded not to eat blood. Because l- blood signifies life. God had an important picture in reminding them of the importance of blood. God would tell Israel through Moses and Leviticus that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so they are to keep a wide berth in their life. They are to show that distinction because they remember that they are ones that were saved by the shed blood of Christ. And so they send them out with the letter, giving them the prohibitions, giving them encouragement. We understand that this wasn't simply their wisdom. Verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Here we are almost 2,000 years ago, and it uh, seems like a similar letter, especially uh, that last one on sexual morality, uh, could be written again. We understand that the gospel should change how we act, how we behave. We're, we're not saved by how we're changed. The change that God brings in our lives is a result of His grace. Paul says in Romans that it is God conforming us to the image of Christ. It's no self-improvement project. It's not that we're helping ourselves. Well, we are recipients of divine grace as God makes us more and more holy like He is holy. They send them off, and there's joy. Because when the gospel is rightly understood, there's joy. I think one of the reasons why uh, we live in a time where there's so many joyless Christians is because so many don't rightly understand the gospel. They don't remind themselves of the gospel. How often, you know, we probably, most of us, at some point of the day, we have our inner monologue. Or we think to ourselves, and we listen to ourselves, and we just let the thoughts roam. You know, we might complain about traffic. We might complain about the day that we have ahead of us. And we, we grumble and murmur. But how often? Yeah, Martin Lloyd-Jones, greatest preacher of the 20th century, said that we don't need to listen to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of the glorious truth of the gospel. We need to be delivered in that. See, they go back to Antioch and they remind them of the gospel as the gospel has been affirmed in Jerusalem and there's joy. Verse 31, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. There's encouragement in the gospel. 
You know, as we think of the gospel, that my standing, my approval, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that my affirmation and approval aren't going to be contingent upon how good of a person was uh, and how chipper I was or, or how many good works I've done, but that I will be saved on that day because of the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's encouragement for all of us. You think about that. One day, every one of us in this room, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we don't have to bring all our good works and say, look at what we've done so that you'll save us. We'll come empty-handed and we'll say, thank you. We will thank the Father for sending the Son to bear the awful weight of the curse of sin upon Calvary's hill and rising again on the third day so that we could have justification, so that God would look at us and be satisfied with the obedience of Christ. That's good news because... Every one of us in this room, you know what you're going to do at some point this week? You're going to sin. You're going to fall short. You might not think you will, but you will. Because we sin in two different ways. We sin by transgression. You know, we, don't, we do what God has commanded us not to do. You, know, you might get caught up in Lexington traffic and lose your temper and uh, ha have some thoughts in your heart that violate what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount uh, uh, about calling people fools and such. And in that moment when conviction hits you, which you're a child of God, it will, you, you have the encouragement of the gospel that says that your standing on that day of judgment isn't going to be based upon how well you held your temper in the confusion of Lexington traffic, but because of what Christ has done for you. The grace of Jesus also saves us from our sins of omission. All those good things that we should have done all the things that we ought to have done. And we just didn't bother getting around to them. I don't know about you, but it's my sins of omission that trouble me more than my sins of commission. I've got a pretty good idea of the things I've done wrong. I don't have a good record of all the good things I never did. But on that great day, we won't be saved because we checked all the boxes. We didn't do the things we shouldn't do. And we did all the things that we should do. We, we was, we're not going to be saved because we checked off all the boxes on the envelope, on the offering. You know, brought my Bible, witnessed to someone. I'm not sure if that's still a box on there. You know, prepared, studied the lesson. We're going to be saved fully, freely because of Christ. This should encourage you as you go out this week. Because you, you're go, you know, 
unless you're locked in solitary confinement this week, which I don't think any of us are going to be in solitary confinement, none of us have this risk, we're all going to run into sinners. And we might have this thought in our mind that somehow that they need to straighten themselves up before they come to Christ. You know, there are sinners, there are people outside the church that think that. You know, there are people that will not darken the doors of the church because they think their life is such a wretched mess that they think that they have to do some self-improvement before they're welcome to come to church. The fact of the matter is, the gospel, well, we come as we are. Could you imagine being dreadfully ill, eat up with cancer and thinking to yourself, I am far too sick to go to the doctor. I better get healthy before I get to the doctor. Just imagine the absurdity of that, thinking, well, you know, I'm having a heart attack. I better get my heart under control before I go to the ER. We come to Jesus, the great physician. We don't come to Jesus, the great physician, because we're healthy and have no need of physician. And as we go out into this world, the people who are in need of a physician, the great physician, sin with sick and misery with the sickness of sin, we have hope for them. And our hope for them isn't, you know, if you just try a little harder, things will get better. The good news that we bring them is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I think Peter and Paul would have a hard time arguing over who is the worst of sinners. I'm sure Peter, if he had met Paul, ran into Paul after Paul said that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, I'm sure Peter would have said, well, have you seen my story? So on one of Peter's first meetings with Jesus, that miraculous catch of fish, what does Peter do? He tells Jesus, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The gospel that we bring, the New Testament gospel, welcomes sinners. As we come to this time of invitation, I tell you, If you're trusting in anything else besides the grace of God in Christ, if you're trusting on anything besides His mercy as the grounds of your salvation, you've got a faulty foundation. And the great danger of our day is there are many who call themselves followers of Christ. They call themselves Christians, but their life is not built on the foundation of the New Testament gospel. It's built on moralism or or self-liberation. But we have good news. We have good news that God cleanses our hearts through faith in Christ. And that if we have trusted in Him, we will be saved by the grace of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. As we come to this time of invitation, we pray that if there are any who have not trusted in Christ, or trusting in what they could do, 
that you would open their eyes to the fact that if they are to come to you, they must come empty-handed. That if we are to be received by you in that last day, it won't be because we bring all our good works and are commended by them. It will be because we are recipients of your mercy through faith and through your grace that abounds in Christ. Pray that if any are not resting in that grace, who have not come to embrace that grace, uh, that they would be saved today. And that we who are your people pray that we would be bold in sharing this gospel because we live in a world sick with sin that needs to be reminded that the gospel is good news for wounded sinners that Jesus came to reclaim. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.